This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I have to say some things today that I know will upset some of you. And I don't like upsetting people. And I especially don't like upsetting people I love. And so I hope you understand that everything that I say today comes from the deepest well of love in my heart. And I hope that this is the beginning of a conversation. I'm sharing this not to make waves. I'm sharing this because I feel that we have to talk, and we have to talk honestly now. I spoke this week with a very dear friend of mine in Israel. She was born and raised in Jerusalem. She was at the protests last Saturday night when 100,000 Israelis took to the streets, as they have every Motzei Shabbat, every Saturday night for the past several weeks, protesting Israel's new government an anti-democratic, ultra-nationalist regime. My friend, like so many people in Israel, has been living with an increased sense of fear and concern and shame and dread as the forces that have risen to power deemed once so extreme that they weren't even permitted to serve in the IDF or form a political party are now solidly in the mainstream. My friend is at the protest and she's listening to these speakers. It's a lot like what happened in our country after an election that awakened many of us to the imminent danger to our democracy. It feels like a national shiva. But then my friend looks over and she sees her parents right there at the protest and she's stunned because her parents are hardly activists. They were born with the state. Her father was an IDF commander in two wars. Her brother died as a soldier in the army. Ein lahem eretz acheret. They have no other home, no other loyalty but to Zion. She weaves her way through the crowd and she approaches them and they're weeping. These are the tears of Zion they say. Aside from the young people in the street these last several weeks, aside from the high-techim and the smolanim and all the activists, there's a whole generation in Israel that is mourning today. These are the ones who dedicated themselves to building the state so precious, so beautiful, so fragile. And they see it being transformed before their very eyes into something utterly unrecognizable. But over on this side of the sea, it's a bit of a different story, isn't it? The great awakening that's happening among our family in Israel seems to have failed to penetrate the language and the approach of our American Jewish community toward Israel. It's true that some of us have made public statements of declaration 
that we would refuse to roll out the red carpet and welcome into our synagogues and our institutions and our schools any representatives of this regime. We've seen progressive organizations like the New Israel Fund and Truah and J Street and others offering strong denunciations. There have been some op-eds. There was a pro-democracy Israel protest in New York City last Shabbos. I wish it had been after Shabbat so many more people could have joined. But even still, what we've mostly heard over the course of the last couple of months has been a chorus of tepid voices praising Israel's vibrant democracy and saying that they look forward to working with the new government, even as they offer sometimes some careful, cloaked expressions of concern about past statements of some members of the governing coalition. We've seen a lot of let's wait and see. Let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not be alarmist. In his commencement address at Oberlin in 1965, Dr. King told the story of Rip Van Winkle. And you know that I love this story. Here's what Dr. King said. The thing that we usually remember about the story of Rip Van Winkle is that Rip slept for 20 years. But there's another point in the story that is almost always completely overlooked. It was a sign on the inn in the little town on the Hudson from, from which Rip went up into the mountain for his long sleep. When he went up, the sign had a picture of King George III of England. By the time he came down 20 years later, the sign had a picture of George Washington, the first president of the United States. It's not that Rip slept for 20 years that's interesting. It's that he slept through a revolution. While he was peacefully snoring up on the mountain, Dr. King said, a great revolution was taking place in the world. Indeed, a revolution which would at points change the course of history. And Rip Van Winkle knew nothing about it because he was asleep. Dr. King closes the story by saying there are all too many people who in some great period of social change fail to achieve the new mental outlooks that the new situation demands, and there is nothing more tragic than to sleep through a revolution. I want you to hear me. There is a revolution that is happening, and this moment demands an awakening on both sides of the sea, an honest reckoning. And I understand the fear and the danger that prevents that kind of conversation from happening here in our American Jewish community. We who know Jewish history, and we believe not only in the legitimacy, but in the necessity of a Jewish state. We who see the rise of violent anti-Semitism in this country and around the world, the shift from marginalized voices to mainstream voices before our eyes. We who remember how the world failed to protect our own people again and again when we were powerless. We who believe in the vision of a state that is both Jewish and democratic as envisioned in the declaration of the establishment of that state. We who understand the fragility of this beautiful, miraculous, complicated dream. We don't want to fuel those who would do us harm. And I never ever want to say a word from this pulpit over here that will fan the fire that could endanger the lives, God forbid, of my nieces and nephews over there. And yet I know that Dr. King was right, that there is nothing more tragic than to sleep through a revolution. And a revolution is happening today, 
one that demands a new mental outlook, a new language, a new discourse for understanding how we are to hold this moment. And I am not sure that our American Jewish community is ready to take this on. And yet we must, for the love of Zion, we must. Awakening to the revolution means in the language of the great label fine from the early 90s, smashing some idols. It means being a kind of honest that will make us all uncomfortable. And it means that the only way that we'll be able to build is by walking into the future with hearts that are both broken and also simultaneously hopeful. Today, there are four idols that we need to smash. First, the myth of the past discontinuous. We could not have seen this coming. This is an anomaly. This is not who we are. Some of Israel's self-appointed chief pundits would like us to imagine that this came out of nowhere, this illiberal, ultra-nationalist regime with its overt racism and homophobia, with its commitment to gutting the judiciary and undermining the High Court of Justice, traditionally the great defender against human rights abuses there, this government with its promise to annex the West Bank and rule permanently over millions of Palestinian people, depriving them of basic rights and dignities, these ministers who speak of a third temple. But if we're honest, what we see today is only the natural next step in the march toward illiberalism, ultranationalism, and extremism that is taking place around the world and has been building in the state of Israel now for decades, a march and a movement. This march toward illiberalism began when we victims of vicious genocidal racial hatred got comfortable with the language of us and them. We love life. They worship at the altar of death. The only language they understand is force. We will only have peace when they love their children as much as they hate ours. It progressed when we who care about every baby caught under the rubble after an earthquake in Tibet failed to bring ourselves to shed a single tear for a Palestinian baby caught under the rubble of an apartment building in Gaza. It progressed when we whose Torah demands 36 times that we not oppress the stranger, that we legislate equal justice for the stranger, that we love the stranger, found ways to twist ourselves into halachic contortions to explain how that just doesn't apply now that we wield the power of a sovereign state and millions of human beings are living under the control of that state. This is not an accident and this is not an anomaly. This moment of extremism has been a long time in the making and our silence has been complicity. And any time a person tried to stand up and speak out, they were met too often with vicious vilification, enough to silence nearly everyone. Second, the myth that there's no such thing as Jewish supremacy. About a half a decade ago, I started to hear the words Jewish supremacists migrate from neo-Nazis and KKK members into my own racial justice circles. And I bristled and I challenged and I argued 
Yes, I said, there's always been a small fringe group of our people who are ideologically committed to the idea that we Jews are fundamentally deserving of privilege and status over others. But this was a marginal group and hardly a movement. This felt clearly anti-Semitic to me, the use of this kind of language. It felt like a dangerous, intellectually lazy, and morally irresponsible attempt not only to misrepresent, but to map a charged American rhetoric onto a complicated, vastly different political reality in Israel. Some years passed, and now what was in fact a small fringe group of Jewish supremacists has fully stepped into the mainstream. These most visible adherents of Jewish supremacist ideology are now not hiding in the dark corners of the internet or whispering in the back of shul. They now hold the most powerful ministerial positions. As painful as it is, we have to affirm that Jewish supremacy poses a real and present danger to the Jewish state and to the Jewish people. When we pretend that it doesn't exist or that naming it is definitionally anti-Semitic, we are being as disingenuous and as morally bankrupt as those who are banning AP African American studies. It doesn't make that history not true. It just makes us complicit in the lie that tries to hide it. Number three, the myth that there is no moral equivalency. We all know what happened, I believe, last Friday night. Last Shabbat, a young Palestinian man approached a synagogue in Neve Yaakov and murdered seven Jews as they walked out of Shul on their way home to Shabbat dinner. This is a devastating, unjustifiable act of violence that was perpetrated against our family. And it came at the end of a month in which 35 Palestinians were killed either by settler violence or IDF raids in the West Bank. Six of those people were children. One of them was a 61-year-old woman. And the perpetrator of the Neve Yaakov shooting, maybe you heard, was the grandson of a Palestinian man who had been murdered a decade ago by a Jewish extremist. That Jewish extremist was never charged for the crime because his lawyer, a young man named Itamar Ben-Gavir, was able to get him off scot-free. Today, the grandchild of the murdered man is now a mass murderer. And Itamar Ben-Gavir is Israel's national security minister, words I never wanted to have to say out loud. The person who authorized the bulldozing of the home of last week's gunman and called for the death penalty of all terrorists, even as he himself kept a framed picture of Baruch Goldstein in his home office for many years before stepping into power. Year after year after year, whenever there are acts of violence against Palestinians, whenever someone waves the flag and says, hey, a thousand people died in Gaza, 35 Palestinians died in the West Bank, we are told and we tell each other that there is no moral equivalency because they are targeting civilians and we do everything in our power to avoid killing civilians. And this lets us off the hook. It gives us an excuse to fail to interrogate why it is 
that there is so much violence? And what are we doing to contribute to the immense pain and suffering that our neighbors are experiencing? I don't want to hear ever again that there is no moral equivalency. I want to see some moral reckoning. And I am not saying that any two actions are the same, but I don't want the excuse to not interrogate those actions openly and honestly. Finally, the myth that a person can be pro-Israel and care about a thriving Jewish future without also caring about a thriving Palestinian future. For years, we have quietly accepted a false and dangerous binary that a person must either be pro-Israel or they're anti-Israel, pro-Palestine. We have been taught that the mark of Jewish commitment is loyalty to the Jewish state, and this requires full-throated support of even policies and practices that are antithetical to our own deeply held Jewish and democratic values. We are expected to mute any criticism, to hide our grief, and to shun those people who speak out. When we fail to comply with this script, we are called traitors, sometimes we're fired, or our lives are threatened. But here's the truth that we need to get our heads around. There's only one future. It is a shared future. If you care about the future of Israel, and I hope you do, then you must care about the future of Palestine. If you are invested in Jewish people thriving and flourishing, and I hope you are, you must care about Palestinian people thriving and flourishing. This is a mental shift, one that we all must make, not only because we fear that our kids are going to get harassed and made to feel unsafe on college campuses, not only because we fear that periodically some gunman's going to come show up at a synagogue and raise holy hell, but also because the status quo is not only unsustainable, but it's morally wrong. It's un-Jewish, it is undemocratic, and our history and our Torah demand more of us. In his book, In the Land of Israel, years ago, Amos Oz writes the story of a drowning man who sees a plank of wood before him. And the drowning man clings on to that plank of wood. He says, this is allowed by all the rules of natural objective universal justice. This man is allowed to make room for himself on the plank, even if doing so means he must push others aside a little bit. But that drowning man has no right to push others off the plank and into the sea. Imagine that image, two people desperately trying not to drown, forced to share one small plank of wood. Neither has the right to kick the other off. Neither has an Eretz Acheret. Neither has anywhere else to go. Despite all of the fantasies that the Jews will pick up and move to New York, and despite all of the fantasies that the Palestinians will somehow become absorbed into Jordan, neither is going anywhere. If you're feeling helpless about what's unfolding over there, the way forward is for us to follow the lead of Israelis and Palestinians in the street who are speaking a language of shared destiny. That is not a language of pro-Israel, anti-Israel, pro-Palestine, anti-Israel. It is a language of shared destiny and it is the only way forward. All of these things require not only a shift in language, but a shift in mindset. Where we are is the natural outcome 
of the fervor, the messianic fervor of this movement over the last many decades. There is a dangerous ascendant force of Jewish supremacy in our community that we have to fight against with all of our might or we will lose everything. We hide behind the guise of no moral equivalency and we fail to interrogate our own behavior and our own complicity and the safety, security, and flourishing of Israeli Jews and arguably our own safety and security and flourishing as diaspora Jews is fully dependent on the safety, security, and flourishing of the Palestinian people. This is the alternative to the cancer of Jewish supremacy, the affirmation that Israel is the Jewish homeland, but it's not a homeland exclusively for Jews. The affirmation that Palestinians have lived in that land for centuries and will continue to live in that land as our neighbors, the commitment to full political and social and economic equality for Arab citizens of Israel, the acknowledgement that our great miracle, the establishment of the state of Israel was for our neighbors a Nakba, a destruction that is ongoing, a displacement that has led to incredible pain and heartache. 600,000 Israelite men left enslavement in Egypt, including women and children and the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude of Egyptians who threw up their hands and said, I've had it with this regime. There were probably 2 million people who left Egypt in the story that we read. 2 million people stood at the edge of the sea. The distance that they had to cross was several miles, some say between four, five, six miles. The width of the passage between the two walls of water that by miracle were established to the right and to the left was about half a mile, according to scholars. Two million people pushing through half a mile wide passage. There's a reason that in our tradition, this is called the birth moment of the Jewish people. And crossing through the Red Sea is seen as passing through the birth canal. And I'm reminded on this day of the words of my friend, Valerie Kaur, who said on New Year's Eve, just at the beginning of the Trump administration, we must ask ourselves, is this the darkness of the tomb or is this the darkness of the womb? Are we now passing through the birth canal to come to the other side and be led by a death cult of triumphalist messianists to our own demise and the great human suffering of another? Or are we passing through the birth canal with all of the pains of labor to come to the other side and finally recognize and realize who we are in the world and who we can be, to build together, every one of us, a shared future for our people and for our neighbors who are also our people. Many of us feel helpless. Many of us feel devastated by what this moment has wrought. I believe that we are being called to step into the role of Shifra and Pua, who began this journey, this birth story, with their own act of courage. We are called to help midwife this revolution. Our instinct is to try to sleep through it. 
we are called to be the midwives, to stand to the left and to the right of our Israeli and Palestinian friends, to amplify their voices and their called for a just and equal society, to remind them to breathe and push, to breathe and push, and then to be with them on the other side, to join hands and sing together a song of freedom, of liberation, of justice, and a song of love. That is our calling in this time. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.